You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. For some patients with chronic hepatitis C, managing the condition with medication does not stop progression of liver disease. When should liver transplants be considered for these patients? Our guest is Dr. Paul Kuo, Medical Director of the Adult Liver Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. Welcome, Dr. Kuo. Thank you. It's good to be here. How prevalent is hepatitis C? So hepatitis C in the United States is the most common bloodborne infection, and the epidemic occurred 20 to 30 years ago prior to us even having a diagnostic test for it. If you look at the Centers for Disease Control data, they suggest that there are somewhere between 3 to 4 million people infected. That's probably a reasonable estimate. Some have postulated that it's actually a bit higher than that due to some populations that were excluded when they did the CDC surveillance. But we can all, I think, safely assume that there are at least 3 million people infected with hepatitis C in the United States. Worldwide, it's about 170 million people who are infected with the hepatitis C virus. And that's quite a bit higher than other bloodborne infections that we commonly hear about, say, chronic hepatitis B or HIV. What usually happens to people after they're infected with hepatitis C? It's very interesting. So with hepatitis C, it's different than other types of infectious hepatitis. So if you have, for instance, acute hepatitis A or B, particularly when you acquire this as an adult, you usually have symptoms. You turn yellow, you feel poorly, and you know you're ill in adults. With hepatitis C, the acute infection, three-fourths of the time, is without symptoms. You don't feel anything. And that's why there is a large pool of individuals who have chronic hepatitis C who don't know they have it because they acquired the disease, but without symptoms, they never thought to seek medical attention. And this disease can go undiagnosed, untreated for decades until we get significant scarring in the liver. And then it's the liver disease that produces symptoms decades later that causes somebody to seek medical attention. So you keep discussing acute and also chronic hepatitis C. What's the difference between those two things and which one is more common? Yeah, so chronic hepatitis C is far more common. And we've already been discussing that there are some 3 million people, at least in the United States, who are infected with the hepatitis C virus. And they're infected chronically. That is, they've typically had it for years and most commonly decades. Acute hepatitis C occurs when you get the virus at the initial infection. And the most common risk factor in the United States for hepatitis C is intravenous drug use. And 20 to 30 years ago, when intravenous drug use was more common and it was not recognized that this was a risk factor for viral infections such as hepatitis C, this was the primary risk factor. It isn't the only risk factor. Any contact with infected blood can do it. And indeed, something is snorting cocaine, blood transfusions, certain types of tattoos. There are a variety of ways that you can acquire 
acute hepatitis C, but again, as we discussed, only about a quarter, 25% have symptoms. So that means 75% of people with acute hepatitis C, and that means there's no, the liver's normal, you get infected, 75% of those people don't have symptoms. When you get acute hepatitis C, it doesn't go away about 85% of the time. So if you're infected with acute hepatitis C, 85% of the time, you're likely to go on to chronic hepatitis C. 15% of people actually get rid of it. That's different than some of the other hepatitis viruses that we talk about. Hepatitis A, which we get through contaminated food, and essentially 100% of people get rid of it. Hepatitis B, if you're an adult and get hepatitis B, 90% of the time, you'll get rid of it. So hepatitis C is the opposite. When you're infected, you get the acute hepatitis, primarily without symptoms, and unfortunately, it does not go away 85% of the time. What are the treatment options for people that get hepatitis C? So the treatment options right now are primarily pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And the important thing people need to know about the treatment options for hepatitis C is that you can cure hepatitis C. That's unlike a lot of other chronic illnesses, but hepatitis C you can cure. There are different species of hepatitis C, or what we call genotypes, and the most difficult and most common genotype in the United States is genotype 1. The cure rate right now for genotype 1 hepatitis C is about 40%, and then there are easier to treat species or genotypes of hepatitis C, genotypes 2 and 3, and your physician can easily tell you which of those you have, and the cure rates there are upwards of 80%. Now, these therapies are not short therapies. You have to be treated for anywhere from 6 to 12 months, and they are associated with some side effects, but the important thing to know is that you can be treated successfully. This summer, we should see the approval of new agents, which will improve the cure rates markedly So, for the genotype 1 infected individuals who are the hardest to treat, so that we should be seeing cure rates this summer with these new medicines added to pegylated interferon and ribavirin of somewhere between 70 75%. And the important thing also is the addition of these new medicines will hopefully shorten the duration of therapy for many people who are infected with hepatitis C, such that we're hoping that around half of these individuals will be able to be treated for a shorter duration, say six months rather than a year. Are these new medicines the NS3 protease inhibitors? Yes, they are. So they're what we call designer molecules. So interferon is a molecule that your body makes. So if you get the flu and you feel poorly, you have aches, you get a fever, that's your body releasing interferon to help fight the viral infection. And indeed, when you give interferon by injection, you're providing additional stimulus for your body's immune system to help get rid of the virus. The ribavirin inhibits the hepatitis C, but it's not a designer molecule. It works against a variety of viruses. The protease inhibitors that you discussed are what we call designer molecules. They specifically attack one of the main proteins involved in hepatitis C replication, and it's the first of a future wave of therapies that we're going to be seeing that target specific areas of the hepatitis C replication, and the bonus is that they far more rapidly inhibit the hepatitis C replication and allow you to clear the virus very quickly from the bloodstream, and the NS3 protease inhibitors are the class that will likely be approved this summer. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest is Dr. Paul Kuo. 
medical director of the Adult Liver Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. We're discussing when to consider liver transplants for patients with hepatitis C. So for patients who go on to have chronic hepatitis C, how likely is it that they develop severe liver disease, such as cirrhosis or even liver cancer? Yes. Again, as we said, 85% of people don't get rid of the hepatitis C. And the hepatitis C infects the liver and over decades causes scarring in the liver. And as a general rule of thumb, we say that 20% of people get cirrhosis with hepatitis C after 20 years. Now, that fibrosis progression can be more rapid. It's typically a bit slower. And indeed, there are people who've been infected with hepatitis C who've had it for 40 to 50 years and have minimal scarring. They can peacefully exist with the hepatitis C. But in general, you could say that over 20, 30, 40 years, people progress from no scarring in the liver to fibrosis to cirrhosis. And it's these individuals that require consideration for liver transplantation. And indeed, in the United States, hepatitis C is the most common reason that people require liver transplantation. When should liver transplant be considered for patients with hepatitis C? So you can live with cirrhosis for quite some period of time. Some people live and have a reasonable quality of life for five to 10 years. However, when you get cirrhosis, you develop other complications. You typically can develop fatigue. When you develop hepatitis C-related cirrhosis, you're at increased risk for liver cancer. And if you do have hepatitis C-related cirrhosis, your doctor and you should discuss regular screening for liver cancer. But what we typically look at is whether or not the person is functioning well and whether or not the liver is functioning well. That is, that it's able to perform all its functions. The blood work is relatively stable, and you haven't developed any of the problems associated with cirrhosis when you decompensate. That is, the liver fails to perform its normal functions. That means that the liver isn't developing ascites, which means fluid in the belly, your belly swells up, that you're not turning yellow or jaundice, that you're not confused, that you haven't developed liver cancer, and that you haven't developed any other problems like variceal bleeding, where the pressure in the liver causes veins in the stomach and the esophagus, which are connected to the liver and cause you to vomit up blood, or what we call hematemesis or variceal bleeding. When you get those symptoms, that's called decompensation. The liver is not able to compensate anymore. And at that time, you should at least start considering a liver transplant evaluation. What is the evaluation process for liver transplantation? So when we see someone for liver transplantation, what we want to do is, number one, make sure that they indeed have the evidence that the liver is not functioning well. And we want to make sure that also that the patient's quality of life is compromised by the liver disease enough such that if we transplant them, that we're going to make them better. That is, some people come in with us for an evaluation. They may be working full-time, and if they are, well, you know, if everything looks okay, you can just follow them, and we do see people like that. However, the vast majority of people with hepatitis C-related cirrhosis at decompensation have a poor quality of life, and the transplant evaluation is directed toward making sure that the patient can have the surgery safely. And what that means is that the heart and lungs are strong enough, and indeed you'll have lung testing, you'll have testing of your heart by a variety of methods to make sure that the heart will make it through the surgery. We'll make sure that the vessels that are attached to your liver 
are open, and we'll make sure that you have appropriate support so that it's not only medical testing, but we want to make sure that someone has enough support to go through a transplant surgery, which for most people will be likely the largest surgery that they will ever go through. And we want to make sure that patients are able to be have the best chance of taking good care of their new liver that they will receive for the longest duration of time. So what's the prognosis for a patient with hepatitis C after they've had a liver transplant? So we do, as we said, the most transplants in the United States are done for hepatitis C. Hepatitis C recurs 100% of the time. Essentially, once you get a transplant for hepatitis C, the new liver, is in general, is infected all the time. And because of the immunosuppression that is given to help prevent rejection, it unfortunately makes the hepatitis C fibrosis rate much faster. So about 20% of individuals with hepatitis C will develop cirrhosis after 20 years of infection or two decades. When you've had a liver transplant, that time frame is accelerated dramatically, and about 20% of people will have cirrhosis after just five years. So we try to keep a very close eye on these individuals, and we try and intervene when appropriate to treat the hepatitis C. You can indeed cure hepatitis C post-transplant, but it's harder because of the immunosuppression makes it harder to get rid of the virus. I think that the upcoming newer agents that are going to be approved the next several years will help allow us to, if you will, aggressively treat these people after a liver transplant. Because with cirrhosis and hepatitis C, it's often very hard to treat people because they're very ill, they can't tolerate the medicines. Post-transplant, it's still a bit more difficult, but it's probably easier than it is when you're awaiting a liver transplant. And while we can treat approximately a third of people right now post-transplant who have hepatitis C, I think in a few years the opportunity to successfully treat people and cure patients of their hepatitis C post-transplant will be much greater. But anyone who's having a liver transplant now should know that the expectation is that the fibrosis rate can be more rapid. It doesn't mean it always is, but can be more rapid after a liver transplant due to the immunosuppression. Do people often need to be retransplanted after they've had their initial transplant? Yes, so some people who cannot get rid of the virus do need to be retransplanted. And again, that sometimes can be a very difficult circumstance because we all do transplants for repeat hepatitis C, but that does make the circumstances more difficult because of the donor shortage. We've been talking with Dr. Paul Kuo about when to consider liver transplants for patients with hepatitis C. Dr. Kuo, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.